A reading from the book of Romans, chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then... He is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, 
were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And thank you, Lewis, for that reading. What a blessing to hear the word of God read and listen to God's word as it is read. Romans chapter 4 is a lengthy and a bit involved chapter, but I wanted you to hear the whole thing before I spoke on it because it really does uh, all flow together. As we looked at all the messages in Romans, we kept looking at chapter 4 and saying, is there a break? Is there a place to make this two messages? But there really wasn't. It's one complete thought. And so we wanted you to hear that whole chapter read this morning, and that's a, that's a blessing. Lewis read that. As we get into the message, let me start by saying this. I don't know. I'm glad we're coming into spring and almost summer here. And I don't know how you keep warm through the New England winters. This one wasn't too bad, but I'll try not to remind you of last year, what that was like. Uh, there were still snow banks, right, this time of year. Uh, I don't know how you make it through a cold New England winter, but one way I make it through is with warm slippers on my feet. And uh, maybe you do too. Maybe you've got your favorite kind of slippers. For me, it's usually a pair of L.L. Bean uh, leather moccasins or, or, uh, that are on my feet. And, the, um, and so a few years ago, I was given a, a pair of L.L. Bean slippers which, uh, to replace some that I already had. And I had been wearing them around the house. And I wear them. If you come to my house in the winter, I mean, every morning I've got these slippers on before, you know, before I'm getting ready. But I don't you know, wear them outside or anything like that. So after a couple months, this pair that I was wearing wore kind of a, like a hole in it. And I thought, well, that's not right. I've only had them for a couple months. They shouldn't wear a hole in them. And uh, I mean, I do wear them every morning, but I'm not that rough on them. And I knew that L.L. Bean kind of had this, this warranty that they have on all of their stuff, but I'd never tried to take them up on it before. And their warranty states, we make pieces that last, so if they don't, we want to know about it. So if it's not working or fitting or standing up to his task, we'll take it back. L.L. himself has always said that he didn't consider a sale complete until goods are worn out and the customer's still satisfied. And I read that and I thought, well, my goods are worn out and I'm not satisfied. <laughs> so I'm going to go and see what happens. So I'm, I thought, well, I'm going to go over to the L.O. Bean store. I'm going to take my, my uh, slippers that I've been wearing for months, uh, my dirty, probably a little smelly slippers, put them in a bag, bring them into the store. And all the while working, going over there, if you've been in one of these situations, right, you are working up your argument in your mind, right, of why you are right and why they should do this for you. So I was working, that's what I was doing, right? I'm working it up and I've got my legal argument, you know, I'm like, hey, you got this warranty and it's on your way. I think I even printed it out. And I'm like, you know, you got this warranty and you say I got to be satisfied and I'm not satisfied. So you got to, you know, your legal obligation. And then I'm working out like the economic argument. Like I shop here and, you know, everyone I know shops here. You know, I'm going to like lobby them with everyone, you know, I know, like, and I won't tell anybody else to shop here anymore. Like I got the, like, that's going to really affect them. Right. 
I got the economical argument that I'm working, and then I work on the moral argument. You know, it's just good for, you know, to treat people well. And, you know, so I got all these arguments kind of working in my head, and finally I'm in the customer service line, and I got my bag of dirty, you know, month-old slippers, you know, a few months-old slippers with a hole in them. Walk up to the customer service desk, finally my turn. Got my, I'm like the prodigal son, I'm like coming home to the father. I'm going through the arguments. I'm not worried that it'd be your friend, you know. And I got them going through my head. I say, you know, I got these slippers, and, you know, I got them a few months ago. I don't have a receipt, right? I don't have a receipt. I don't have any, I didn't buy them. They were a gift. I don't, you know. But, uh, but, you know, they're obviously your slippers, and they've got a hole in them, and, you know, I don't think they should have a... And before I even, like, said anything else, she's like, oh, no problem. She's like, would you like a new pair? And I said, well, wait, I got all these arguments. I've got a... Yeah. She's like, no problem. We'll take them back. You know, that's, you know, we'll give you a new pair of slippers, and, uh, you know, if you want them, you know, otherwise, you know, we give you store credit. And I thought, wow, that was easy. And they did. They took them right back, and they, they gave me a new pair of slippers and walked out, and I was, you know, pretty happy about that. And I say that all this morning to say this. You know, why would L.L. Bean do that? Why did Leon Leonwood Bean at some point come up with that policy? And I don't know when he came up with it, whether it was in 1912 when he started his catalog business or somewhere along the line later. But somewhere along the line... L.L. Bean decided that we will give credit based on our own credibility and not on the credibility of our customer. Somewhere along the line, they said, you know what, there may be someone who comes in and lies. Maybe they come in and try and pull one over on us. Maybe they come in and they didn't really, you know, it's, it, it's a lot older than they said they were, and they were a lot rougher on it than they said they were. But maybe they, they, they pull one over on us. But we are going to give credit based on our own credibility, regardless of the credibility of the customer. And I say all that this morning because that's a little bit along the lines of what we've been talking about here if we've been going through the book of Romans. Who gives you credibility? Who gives you credit when it comes to being right with God? We've said for the last number of weeks that none of us are perfect. We've all erred in some way. And we use that as an excuse to say, oh, no one's perfect. But God doesn't allow us to use that as an excuse. He really says, no, that's not really an excuse. It's really something that accuses you. Because none of you are perfect. No one's perfect. And so how can you be rightly restored to a relationship with a perfect and a holy God? And many of us think, well, I'm going to build up my credit. I'm going to go on my own credibility. How are we going to be restored to that right relationship with God? The people that Paul is writing to in Romans chapter 4, they had their own idea of where their righteousness was going to come from, where their rightness with God, where it was going to come from. See, this word credit in this passage, you heard as Lewis read it throughout the passage, if you were listening, the word credit came up a number of times. But also for us, he says, to whom God will credit righteousness to those who believe. Or Romans chapter 4, the beginning. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but it's an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts in God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. This word credit, it's the Greek word logis. Logis, logisdomai, I practiced that so many times and I still got it wrong. 
logizdomai. And it occurs in this, word, in this chapter numerous times. In fact, it occurs in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, and 24, as well as verse 8, except it's translated count there instead of credit. But all throughout this passage, the word credit, this Greek word, per, uh, pervades the passage. And it's basically saying, how is it that you will be credited with righteousness, you who are unrighteous and unjust and have, uh, have done things wrong, how will you be credited with it? To credit something is to confer a status on it that wasn't there before. Well, the people that Paul's writing to, they thought they knew how they would be credited with righteousness. They thought that it was theirs based on the fact that they were God's people and based on the actions that they had done to maintain that status. So he's writing to people who were Jewish people. And they thought, we are God's people. God says we're his people. And we've done things to maintain that status. Now, one of the bigger ones and most significant ones that came up throughout that passage is circumcision. And that was a sign that was given. But there were all kinds of other things. There were laws that they kept and feasts that they kept and all kinds of things. And they thought, we've done all these things. Certainly we're in. We're God's people. But what Paul points out is saying, look, it's not about rule keeping. And you can keep all the rules you want. But he says the rules and the law, the best purpose they can serve is to show you how much you can't keep them. The the, the highest purpose of the law is really to show you how much you can't keep the law. And it's not going to work to be your credit. And so what it does, even in some places, Paul says, is it uh, it actually promotes God's wrath, because it shows that we can't keep the law. Haddon Robinson, a preaching professor of mine, he writes about something the Apostle Paul, I think, in this passage could probably identify with, and namely the tendency of the law to just put ideas in our heads. And so it's not there to give us credit. He says this. Haddon Robinson says, I'm told the story several years ago of a high-rise hotel that was built in Galveston, Texas, overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. It was so close to the water, in fact, they sank pilings into the gulf and built a structure out over the water. And when the hotel was about to have its grand opening, someone thought, what if people decide to fish outside the hotel windows? So quickly, they placed cards in all the hotel rooms that said, no fishing out the windows. What do you think people did? Many people ignored the signs, however, and it created a difficult problem. Lines got snarled and tangled. I mean, you can imagine, like, you're on the third floor, and you're, you know, dropping your line out the window. All of a sudden, someone from the tenth floor, you know, drops their line out the window, and they're fishing. And then there were people reeling in fish, and the fish would, like, slap against the dining room windows (laughs) where people were eating. And it was a problem. So no one wants to see that. That's not good for anybody. So the manager of the hotel solved the problem. All he did was take down the signs. Just took down the signs because no one checks into a hotel thinking about fishing out the windows. <laughs> the law, although well-intentioned, created the problem. And that's kind of what Paul's saying as well. The law is well-intentioned, but it's not going to save you. The best it's going to do is point out how much you need saving. That's not going to work to credit you for righteousness. But I think we're also tempted at times to think that being God's people and the accompanying actions to maintain it are what makes us righteous. 
are what credits us with righteousness. Hey, look, we're God's people. We're sitting in these seats on a Sunday morning. It could be any number of places. It's a beautiful day to be cutting the lawn. You know, we could, we could, it's, it's starting to warm up. We can do some planting outside. There's lots of other things I could be doing. But God, I am sitting here in this seat listening to this semi-boring sermon, hoping it gets better. I don't know. I know what's going through your head. No. God, I'm doing it. Look, this is it, right? I'm, I'm, this is, I am God's people. Why else would I be sitting in this seat on a Sunday morning? We can be tempted to think the same way they did. We're God's people. Of course we're in. We got things this week we can look back and say, I was tempted to do something wrong, but I did the right thing. Of course I'm in. Of course I'm God's people. Of course we are credited with righteousness. We can fall into the same line of thinking. It's easy to look back at them and say, oh, you know, how could they do that? How could they think just because they, you know, kept these laws that they were good with God? How could we do the same thing? It, they had this sign that they had, this sign that God had given them of, given Abraham of circumcision. And they thought, well, that's, you know, if I got the sign, I'm saved. It was a little bit like we talked about a few weeks ago, that the sign is not what's important. The sign, it's like going, going to the Grand Canyon. Like, like I said, it's, you, don't have the, you don't have the Grand Canyon there because the sign's there. The sign is there because the Grand Canyon's there. And you're not going to celebrate the sign. You're going to celebrate what the sign points to. And so it's not the sign that's important. It's, what's imp- it's what the sign points to. So God had a very different idea of how righteousness would be credited. And to make his point, he brings up this man from the Old Testament named Abraham, who is a significant uh, person, obviously, in Jewish history. But really, uh, Ju- Judaism, Christianity, and Islam would all point to Abraham as uh, the founding patriarch of faith and religion. Abraham is significant. So he goes right back to Abraham, goes back to the founder of the faith, goes back to the basics, and he says, look, even Abraham, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's going back to the founder. He said, you think that Abraham was saved because he kept this law. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. It was never about keeping the law. It was about faith. What happened is God called this man, Abram. He later changed his name to Abraham. He called Abram. Do you know why he called Abram? Do you know why he chose him from all the people on the earth? No, you don't know why. Because nobody knows why. God alone knows why. He just had to choose someone and he chose Abram. He chose this man because he wanted to reveal himself and his plan to people. And so he had to choose someone. And for some reason in God's sovereignty, and because God only knows, he chose this man named Abram. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And he gave him three promises in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. And you're going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Genesis chapter 12. And Abram said, that sounds good to me. 
That's good. You know, and, they, and he accepted this promise from God. He followed God's voice as God told him to leave his homeland. And he believed God. He believed God. When God said, I'm going to make you a great people, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the earth. And what did Abraham do? All he did was believe God. And in that moment, it was credited to him as righteousness. Later on in Genesis chapter 15, God reminds Abraham of the promise. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be the father of a great nation. Of course, at that point, though, there are two major problems with what God had said. One, Abraham had no children. Hard to be a great nation, father of many nations, when you're not even the father of one child. He and Sarah had no children. Secondly, he's really old. Like 90, if you're 90, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's kind of old. That's kind of old. That's good. I'm glad you got to 90. I want to be 90 someday. I hope to get to 90. And when I am, you can call me old. That's kind of old. So he's, so he's 90. And Sarah's, you know, Sarah's old. And so God says, but I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And it's going to come through Sarah. And this is going to come to pass, even though you have no children, and physically it's not in your eyes possible. I think if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, I think the oldest person to give birth on, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, is 57. Apparently nobody from the Book of Guinness was there when Sarah... Abraham to verify this because Sarah was way past that age. Abraham weighs his circumstances against the promises of God. And then the word of God says that fully confident that God would do what he had promised. Fully confident that God would do what he had promised. One commentator put it this way. On the one hand, we have to think about the problems which face us. Faith is not closing our eyes to them. Abraham, it says in the scripture, considered his own body which was as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't close his eyes to it. He saw it. He saw, he knew he was old. He knew none of his friends were having kids. Like he wasn't dumb. He knew this isn't normal. He knew this doesn't happen. He considered the deadness of his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. But he faced the fact, the NIV says, that he, he faced the fact that that was, that was true. He knew that he and Sarah were both infertile, that this wasn't going to happen. But on the other hand, Abraham reflected on the promise of God and on the character of God who had made them, especially that he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And as his mind played on the promises, the problems shrank accordingly, for he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. John Stott puts uh, puts it this way. How did Abraham become such a massive, how did Abraham come to such a massive exercise of faith? He weighed the human impossibility of becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word and decided that if God was God, nothing is impossible. He weighed the human impossibility of becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God going against his word 
And he decided that if God were God, nothing is impossible. Some of you need to do the same thing. Some of us this morning need to do the same thing because we get words from God and they may seem impossible when you look at the circumstances around you, but what faith is, it's not a wish, it's not just a hope, it's not, you know, a hope or nothing. It is counting on the God who is completely trustworthy and believing that if God is God, nothing is impossible for him. Abraham kept the faith, but it wasn't wishful thinking or hope something would happen. It was full confidence in God. In God, One writer illustrates it this way when it comes to uh, faith in God and prayer. He talks about three farmers who gather daily in a field during a horrible drought. The men are down on their knees looking upward, praying the skies will open and pour forth much needed rain. Unfortunately, the heavens are silent and the petitioners become discouraged, but they continue to meet every morning to lift up their request to God. One morning, an uninvited stranger approaches and asks the men what they're doing. They respond, we're praying for rain. The newcomer looks at each of them and shakes his head, no, I don't think so. The first farmer says, of course we're praying. We're down on our knees, pleading for rain. Look around, see the drought. We haven't had rain in more than a year. The outsider continues to nod his head, advises them their efforts will never work. The second farmer jumps in and says, we need the rain. We aren't asking for ourselves only, but for our families and our livestock. The man listens, nods, and says he still isn't impressed. You're wasting your time, he says. The third farmer can't take anymore, and in anger, he says, okay, what would you do if you were in our shoes? The visitor asks, you really want to know? The three landowners, we really want to know. The future of our farmlands is at stake. The guest announces, I would have brought an umbrella. All right, that one didn't go over as well. But the idea, (laughs) the idea is the faith that's being exercised. The idea is, do you really believe and have faith that God can do the impossible? Or are you just hoping and wishing that something might happen? Are you just hoping, is it your backup plan? Is it your, well, it would be nice? Or is it, I have faith that God will be faithful to his word and to his people. And I'm going to trust that God is going to come through. Abraham was counted as righteous not because of his works, but because of his faith. Paul points out the law wasn't given until 450 years after Abraham. So he couldn't even keep it. There wasn't even a law given. And then he says circumcision, that was later. That was years later in Abraham's life, well after this verse, where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We are credited with righteousness through faith in Jesus, the same way that Abraham was. The end of chapter 4 in verses 24 and 25, Paul writes this. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Paul's saying Abraham believed God and it was credited to him to righteousness. And if you and I ask the question, how can we be made right with God? How can we be credited with righteousness? Paul answers the question, believe in him who raised Jesus the Lord from the dead. And it's credited to you for righteousness. And that's what it comes down to. Will we believe that God will be faithful to his word and that we are justified not through our works but through what God has done in Jesus Christ? Will we trust that God, I will be justified not through what I can do but what through Jesus did? And Paul says that's the only way you can be credited as righteous. A life of faith is not a life of wishful thinking. Let me just talk for a minute about the implications of what faith looks like, but a confidence not in myself, but in God. A life of faith is a transfer of trust from myself to God. A life of faith is not a leap into darkness, but a reasoned response to the light. Not a leap into darkness, but a reasoned response to the light. We take into account all our circumstances and trust the God who is above them all. Faith is, it's not an excuse for irrationality. We're not talking about that. Not talking about just wishful thinking. Bertrand Russell called faith a conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a leap into darkness. We're talking about a reasoned response to the light that has been revealed. In particular, faith is believing or trusting a person and its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. That's really the question. Can you trust God? Abraham said, absolutely. That I can trust God beyond all the circumstances I see around me. And the question for you and I is, can you trust God? Because that's what faith is. It's always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. To live a life of faith is to be fully confident that God will do what he has promised. When Paul tells us to be people of faith, he's not telling us to wish upon a star and hope things will work out. He's not telling us to be confident in ourselves. He tells us to be confident in God and who he is. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're walking through a difficult situation There are many here today who might be facing a situation in which the circumstances are overwhelming. But what God has promised in the middle of your difficult circumstances is what you can hang on to. Some of the promises of God in Scripture, provision, he's promised to supply our every need. Now, what are our needs? That's part of the question. Often we think things are needs that maybe God doesn't think is a need. Our greatest need is for salvation and to be credited with righteousness beyond this world. He's promised that his grace will be sufficient for us. Times of our weakness, times of our place where we fall short, where we want something taken out of our lives, he's promised my grace will be sufficient for you. He's promised a way out of temptation you struggle with temptation in your life, God said, I'll always provide a way out of it. I'll always provide a way of escape. 
but it's up to you to take it. He's promised victory over death. That death for the believing person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ becomes a door to Christ's full presence. He's promised he'll never leave or forsake us. He's promised that he's in control, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's promised to be a healer and deliverer. He's promised salvation and he's promised eternal life. Now you can look around you and you can say, well, the circumstances don't bear that out. But faith, faith is being able to trust in the trustworthy, being able to trust God and walking in places and ways that may not always make sense to us. But what does it look like? What does it look like in real life? Let me close with two real-life stories that may give us an idea of what it looks like. Because I think sometimes when I say the word faith, first of all, oftentimes we think of it as a noun, like we're in the faith, we're a part of the faith, and it's a noun, like it's a part of a doctrine that we ascribe to and nothing more than that. And then other times, even when we think of it as a verb, to have faith, it's a little ambiguous. Okay, we talk about it on Sunday, but what does it look like Monday through Saturday? What does it actually look like with feet hit the ground? What does it look like during my life? How does it affect me? Let me give you a couple real-life examples that I came across recently. One is of Dr. Kent Brantley. Dr. Kent Brantley and his family had moved to Monrovia, Liberia, so Kent could serve as a medical missionary in that country. Little did he know that he'd eventually find himself on a small plane chartered by the Centers for Disease Control because he himself was indeed in need of medical care. When word came to their camp in Monrovia, Liberia, of the first case of Ebola, His team took notice, but they didn't think too much of it because that case was 200 miles away, and there were lots of deadly diseases in West Africa for them to deal with. But at the same time, they took some precautions. They prepared uh, a place and facilities for people to be treated. They trained on protocols, and they stocked up on all the protective equipment that they might need in case the virus did come anywhere near them. Soon Ebola spread throughout West Africa and Monrovia became ground zero for the epidemic. Then Dr. Brantley's worst nightmare came true. One morning he woke with the symptoms and understood that now he faced the same dark path that so many other patients had walked before him. At the urging of Samaritan's Purse, the relief organization that had sent Kent to Liberia, the American government intervened and decided that Kent had to come home. And so they brought him home. He laments to this day that others didn't have the same opportunity. He lives with survivor's guilt after recovering from Ebola in the following months. Many people have asked Kent if his faith is what healed him from the deadly virus. It's a natural question people would ask. After sharing how grateful he is to be Ebola-free, his response is always the same. 
actually, it is my faith that's responsible for me getting Ebola in the first place because it led me to serve the people of Monrovia, Liberia. And he's not saying that in any way disparagingly or in any way regretfully. He's stating it as a fact that it's my faith that put me in the situation where I might get Ebola. Because it's my faith that compels me to serve and to act and to live in such a way. That's what faith looks like. It's not just sitting in a chair and saying, I believe in Jesus. It's living your life in such a way that throughout the rest of your week that shows I believe in Jesus. That I believe that this world is not the end. That I believe that there's something else that we're living for. That I believe that there's a God who's in control. That I believe that it is not all about what I see around me right now. This is not anything new, what Dr. Brantley was doing for Christians, that faith would compel us to love in a way that risks our own life. Many Christians throughout the ages have done it. From the very beginning of the church, during the deadly plagues in Rome, when doctors and leaders fled to save their own lives, Christians stayed to provide bread and water to the sick. Think about that for a moment. Would you be able to do that? Would I be able to do that? When other people are saying, we need to get out. We need to live to fight another day. We need to protect and preserve our lives. We need to protect and preserve the, right, the lives of our families. That Christians said, somebody needs to take care of these people who are sick and hurting. Somebody needs to love them and care for them. And it was their faith that compelled them to do it. Dr. Kent Brantley comes from a long tradition of selfless, reckless compassion. And you know, that's what many people might describe it as. That's reckless. You know, for you to go over there and put your life in that situation and put yourself in a place where you could get deadly sick, that's reckless. And yet it's what our God calls us to. Not safety and comfort, but often reckless compassion that risks reputation, that risks sometimes life, certainly comforts. When your faith is not in this world, then your life in this world takes a back seat to the God you serve and love. Last one, and this is mostly just a quote. Uh, Mindy Bells, a reporter for World Magazine, has traveled throughout the Middle East reporting for World Magazine for many years. And in that time, she often asked Christians a very simple question. Why are you so happy? Many people in the United States, maybe you look at the situation of what they might be living in, you say, why are you so happy? The answer she gets is demonstrated in a quote she gives from Chaldean Archbishop Amal Nona who against the backdrop of the Islamic State and other terrorist groups forcing millions from their homes, said, our identity is to live like Jesus Christ. We were angry. We were afraid. But we were also happy. Our faith is more important than anything and everything else.
Nona doesn't have a diocese anymore. He doesn't have a church. ISIS destroyed all that, and all his people are scattered. Nona says of his flock, none of them thought it would be better not to be a Christian. Both these gentlemen point to their faith. It's their faith. Their faith in Christ, their faith in God, their faith in God that their righteousness, their forgiveness is credited through their faith in God, that they are made right with God and their faith is what sustains them. And you and I, at times, will be challenged to live lives of faith and that's gonna look different for you tomorrow. You go to work tomorrow, it's, maybe, it's not a medical missions trip, maybe you're not putting your life in danger But you will have opportunities at times to live lives of faith. Sometimes you'll want to speak up for something that you know is true and that you know is right. You'll want to care for someone that you know isn't the popular person to care for in your workplace, in your neighborhood. You'll risk your reputation. Some of you are doctors and nurses, and at times you do have to put yourselves in situations where you do risk your own health to minister and to share and to be compassionate to others, and you do that on a regular basis. And you do that because it's your job, but I hope you also do it because of the compassion of Jesus Christ that lives within you. Because this is the kind of people God has called us to be, the kind of people that will relieve suffering, Show compassion. Why? Not to earn our salvation, but because our salvation has been given as a free gift. And nothing that happens to us in this world can change it. Nothing, no rule, no law, no no president can change the fact that your righteousness is given through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and your faith in him alone is what makes you righteous before God. So as we close this message, I think there's a call for maybe three things in here. Maybe you just need to remember that your righteousness is not based on your credibility, but on God's work. It's not based on your credibility, but on God's and on Christ's sacrifice. And if you will put your faith in Christ and his sacrifice... There's a double switch that takes place. Christ takes on your sin. He gives you his righteousness. You're made clean in him because of what he's done. Not through your works, but through what he has done. Secondly, maybe you're here and you just need to trust God in spite of your problems. That you need to trust God's promises to you in spite of the problems that you see around you. That God has not abandoned you. That God has not forgotten you. That even in spite, like Abraham, looking around and seeing no other 90-year-old or 100-year-old men or 90-year-old women giving birth to babies. Abraham looked and said, I will trust the word of God given to me in spite of what I see around me. And there may be a word of God that you need to hang on to this morning. Third and finally, because of your faith in God's promises, maybe today God will challenge you to just live lives of faith filled with acts of reckless 
compassion and love for the people around you, that your faith and that my faith would compel us to live lives of love and compassion, of showing the love of Jesus Christ to people around us, even when we have to risk something for it. I was, last week we had uh, Jenny Falcon share on this stage about her last 10 years in Swaziland. And um, I was thinking about that this past week, and I was thinking, you know, I, I remember talking to Bev uh, and Gil, her parents, when she was, you know, going, and, and she had this call, and they didn't know how long, maybe a few months, maybe a year, you know. But still, you're sending your young, single daughter just out of college to this small, landlocked African nation that has the highest percentage of HIV cases of any nation in the world. Is it safe? Probably not. Was it God's call on her life? Absolutely. And so you talk and you think and you pray through it and you say, where else do you want to be rather than the, other than the place where God is calling you? There's no safer place to be. And that may not mean your physical safety, but the safety of your soul is following and obeying the voice of God in your life. Sometimes that faith is going to take you to difficult and painful situations. Sometimes that faith in God is going to cause you to risk comfort for sure, safety probably, reputation, sure. That faith in God is going to cause you and I to have to risk things for him. There's going to be a cost to it. But our faith requires that we live lives knowing that this is true. If this life is not what it's all about, if eventually this is all gone and all that matters is our place in Christ's presence and worshiping him, and if it's true that, that, uh, that old cliche that only one life will soon be passed and only the things that are done for Christ will last, then will we live lives that truly reflect that, lives of faith in him. And so I challenge you this week, remember that your righteousness has been credited to you, not on, based on what you do, but on based on your faith in Christ and on what he's done. Remember that God's promises are true in spite of the problems that you see. And remember that that faith that we have calls us to live lives of reckless love and compassion for the world around us. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, and I thank you once again for the reminder that we have heard time and time again in the first part of this letter to the Romans. God, I am so grateful, and we are so grateful that our salvation, our righteousness is not based on who we are or what we have done, but is based on who you are and what you have done. Lord, thank you for that gift that you have given to us. But Lord, I pray that you would help us now, those of us that have received that gift, those of us that have, have received that righteousness from Christ through the great cost of Jesus 
own life on the cross. Help us to live lives that are faithful to you and that are lived in faith. Lord, trusting you more than our own wisdom, more than our own knowledge, more than our own intellect, trusting that ultimately you are the God who loves and rewards, Lord, the faithfulness to you. Not that we are trying to earn our salvation, but Lord, in light of what we have received, that we would live our lives for you completely. It literally, Lord, is, is all we have to give and the least we can do, and it does not at all earn anything that you've given to us. But Lord, let us enjoy, give back to you what you've given to us. And so I pray for this church. I pray for the men and women who are here. Lord, as they go into their workplaces this week, as they go into their schools, their classrooms, as they go into their neighborhoods, Lord, I pray that a message that's preached on Sunday, that you would teach us how to live it out Monday through Saturday. Lord, that you would bring it back to our minds and our remembrance, Lord. Lord, those times where we are tempted to act safely, to preserve our own self and our own comfort rather than hanging on to your promises. Lord, would you help us to live lives trusting completely in you? Father, would you help us to be people of faith, trusting that you are in control, that you are the one who ultimately guides us and leads us no matter what happens, Lord. That our faith is in you. That you will be faithful to your word and your promises in our lives, Lord. And may the community around us see us as a church who not only says that we have faith in God, but shows it by the lives that we live. The reckless compassion and grace that's exhibited through us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.